In North Carolina, I've had my like legislator change so much in recent years that like when at, shortly after Trump took office, I like wanted to call my rep to like complain about some you know tell him not to vote for some bill or something, and like I, I call you know his his DC office and the assistant that I speak to like. I tell him where I live and he tells me that like, oh no, you're actually, you have this other congressman who you should be calling. I said, no, no, I was in his district like before, but now I'm in your district. And they, they, it was like too much for him to like comprehend that they hadn't like (laughs) updated their maps yet. So like I, I was, I was incapable of petitioning my representative, um, not to, not to support a bill. This is this is kind of the interesting part about living in a post-fact world, right? Where <laughs> sort of, you know, these are highly factual determinations that need to be made, but facts are completely out the window. Yeah, you, you live in that guy's district, not mine. <laughs> as far look, as far as I'm concerned, uh, this call is harassment. <laughs> And if you and if you petition your representative again, we'll have you arrested. That's Tom. It wasn't that Tom Cotton. Tom Cotton said to cease and desist to everyone in America not to complain to him about the law. This is amazing. He was trespassing the entire country from like his office. Uh, We have taken the Constitution in an in rem proceeding, and you can't have it back. You little stupid ass bitch, I ain't fucking with you. You little, you little dumb ass bitch, I ain't fucking with you. I got a million trillion things I'd rather fucking do than to be fucking with you. Little stupid ass, I don't give a fuck. Hi, hello everyone, and welcome to episode five of Mike Dicta, America's best named legal podcast. I'm your host, Charles Starr. Uh, we've got uh, a couple of our regulars back, and we've got a new member of the panel today. Uh, let me introduce everyone we've got here. First up is the Hell Dude, Tarek. Hello. Uh, with us again, uh, first appearance, I think, since the first episode. Everyone say hi to uh, Michael. Hello. And with us for the first time uh, from North Carolina, a, a capital appellate defender. Uh, which is good for today's topic. Everyone say hi to Twitter's kept simple, known today as Mark. Hey, everyone. Uh, It might be surprising to everyone who knows him as Kev, but everyone who knows him as Kev knows he's not Kev. Uh, I think that was was true at one point, but it's not true anymore. I think many people actually (laughs) think my name is Kevin. The the joke has expanded beyond what was originally a joke. Wait, it's not Kevin? (laughs) We have... (laughs) So it's it's Kevin because like in 2013 or 14 I got an email from a someone in the attorney general's office here who's my opposing counsel in a case that was like coming up for oral argument very soon and I was like very stressed out about the case and she just I mean we'd been having a back and forth for a while and she just addresses me as Kevin in the email and I made the mistake of like tweeting about that and complaining that she like got my name wrong and I thought maybe this was some sort of like mind game she was trying to play with me and the obvious result of that was that everyone then just started calling me Kevin on Twitter too. You're the Kev dude. That's right. 
That, interestingly enough, is how Mark ended up on death row and interested in Capital Appeal. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So so we are actually going to do a bunch on the death penalty because there are a bunch of interesting uh, cases kicking around. The first one I think we're going to talk about is uh, Hidalgo v. Arizona, which is uh, an interesting case for two reasons. First, because... uh, the sort of very specific challenge to the Arizona statute is uh, right now uh, it is there is a cert petition pending in the Supreme Court and they've relisted it a couple of times, but they haven't decided to grant or deny yet. Um, but the the more specific complaint to Arizona is that Arizona has a capital scheme and uh, someone can step in if I get this wrong, but they have a capital scheme with aggravating factors that change first-degree murder to uh, death-eligible first-degree murder. And there are so many aggravating factors that 99% of the first-degree murders committed in Arizona in the last 10 years or so are also death-eligible. So it really does not limit... Uh, the difference between first-degree murder and death uh, and capital eligible at all. Right. And then the second... Sorry, go ahead. And then, this, and then the second, and we'll get to this a little later, is beyond just attacking uh, Arizona's scheme uh, for determining uh, whether a defendant is eligible for the death penalty, they have a full-on attack on the constitutionality of... Uh, the death penalty in toto, uh, basically because of the uh, discriminatory and the discriminatory enforcement and the impossibility of creating a scheme that avoids that discriminatory enforcement. Um, I think I I find it hard to believe that this Supreme Court is going to grant on the second question at all. But I think the first is interesting. I mean, both are interesting questions, but I just find it uh, unlikely that they're going to accept a challenge on the constitutionality of the death penalty in general. Thoughts? Um, I mean, I would say that, you know, even on that first question, though, I mean, the court, I'm sure, knows this, is if, if they were to invalidate Arizona's death penalty or accept this challenge in any way, that it would really basically be the end of the death penalty as we know it in the United States completely, because the system that Arizona uses is the system that basically every state in the country uses. Some states do it a little differently. Texas does it a little differently, but the aggravating factor system is how the death penalty is implemented, has been implemented in the United States since the 1970s. I mean that's that's interesting. I mean the Hidalgo the Hidalgo petition certainly doesn't phrase it that way, right? They make a point of distinguishing Arizona from other from other states in that other states have like fewer aggravating mm-hmm. factors and fewer uh, fewer um, a lower percentage of first degree 
uh, first-degree murder offenses are also automatically capital eligible. So at the very least, they they may be trying to define the outer bounds of what an aggravation scheme can look like. Yeah, I mean, I think they're they're certainly trying to do that. And I certainly Arizona's, you know, I, I looked at them and it seemed like the first half were these sort of traditional aggravators that almost every state has and and some Actually, of, uh, you know what you know what mark let's just take a second yeah, do you want to sort of talk sure. people do you want to talk people through how uh how an aggravation how 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 states using this kind of system will distinguish between uh first degree murder and capital murder sure so like the way we wound up this way was in 1972 there was the supreme court decision Furman v georgia um, that basically invalidated the death penalty as we knew it in the United States. It, it ended it for that for a, about a four year period, and before that time, basically, in a, what you saw in a lot of states was it was just completely open. You know who got the death penalty, who didn't. It was an open question for juries. Um, there was no guidance whatsoever provided to them. Um, and the Supreme Court said at that time, you know, you, you can't do it this way anymore. It's one, it's too arbitrary. And two, it doesn't really narrow um, who is death penalty eligible to, you know, what are sometimes called the worst of the worst offenders. The, you know, every murder is certainly bad, but the death penalty is supposed to be for these very few really bad murders. Um, and so when the when the Supreme Court allowed the death penalty to come back in 1976, in this case, in another Georgia case, Greg v. Georgia, um, they endorsed this system that had been basically invented by the American Law Institute, which is sort of exactly what it sounds like. It's just these like law professors, you know, sitting around in a room and deciding what the law should be, um, you know, not done with any like empirical data or anything. Um, and they came up with this aggravating factor system where, you know, basically you, in order to be eligible for the death penalty, first the person has to be guilty of, of you know, what's often called like first degree murder, which is usually either an intentional murder or premeditated murder or felony murder, which is when you kill someone in the act of committing some other dangerous felony. And then in addition to that, you need to have one of these statutorily enumerated um, aggravating factors that are set out in a statute and a jury needs to find at least one of those exists before the person could be sentenced to death. Um, and so, that usually, sorry, go ahead. So is, so is, is the aggravating factor something that's charged and needs to be proven or it, is it, it uh, just enough to allege that it was there? It needs to be proven to the jury beyond a reasonable doubt. Um, the, the, is, is that the, usually at the sentencing? I think usually the aggravating factors are yes. done at the sentencing phase, not at the guilt phase. In okay. most right. states, it's done at the sentencing phase. In Texas, in a handful of other cases, it's done in the guilt phase. But I mean, the effect is the same. It just depends on you know whether you do it in one part of the trial, the part of the you know the the sort of death penalty trials have two parts. There's sort of the the usual part that you think of in any criminal trial where the jury decides is this person guilty or innocent of the crime? And then if they say, yes, you are guilty of first degree murder, then the jury goes on. If it was charged capitally, it goes on to the second phase where the jury then they'll consider the aggravating factors and they consider what are called mitigating factors, which is, you know, exactly the opposite. Any, any fact that the jury might find that 
would make the person, you know, less deserving of the death penalty. And then they like, like weigh those white. and decide what sentence to impose. Michael? Well, I was just saying the classic, you know, aggravating factor, I think, in practice is, is being black. And the classic <laughs> mitigating factor oh, is, being, is being white, well, right? It's, 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 it's funny you should mention that. Was, <laughs> they, they, they found, I think, specifically in Greg that that uh, was not justiciable. <laughs> um, um, but, you know, Arizona, I think, has actually found a nice little workaround on that because one of the aggravating factors is that the crime was committed in the furtherance of a street gang. So, oh, God. <laughs> there you go. No, specifically a street gang. It's, you know, not one of those um, down home Italian. You know, white gangs. right. And so, <laughs> and so, the the like usually, I think what I remember in Arizona, they had like the the factors were uh, particularly heinous. Mm-hmm. I think. I think. Or it was in the course of multiple murders was an aggravating factor. If it was mitigating factors are usually the sorts of things like abused as a child or mental uh, deficiency, Mm -hmm. whether, you know, you know, borderline IQ and things like that are all the kinds of things that they use as mitigating factors. Though I don't know that mitigating is usually enumerated in the same way that – and I, if you care, I can. So the Supreme Court has said that actually, that any the jurors have to have the ability to consider literally anything is mitigating. Basically, so you know you you can. It, it's a matter more of strategy what you decide to put up. Um, but aggravating is so he had it. So he had it coming. Is a mitigating fact. <laughs> so if 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 you, uh, I, you know, I, I I'm not I'm not going to go down that road. But it is. <laughs> but it, if somebody say it is very broad. Um, but you know these the aggravators you're talking about the ones in Arizona that you specifically mentioned those are all those American Law Institute aggravating factors that I think basically every state has you know and they are the ones that are you know the the petition makes a big deal out of the n- raw number of them but it's often just that it's a single aggravator can be incredibly broad in and of itself so if you had a prior serious offense conviction. Um, if the murder was committed for pecuniary gain is another one. And I think when people hear that, they think, oh, it's like a hitman or something. But that means in most states, you know, if you kill someone and as an afterthought grab their wallet, that's that's pecuniary gain. And that separates that murder from, you know, Jesus. a non-capital murder. Um, the especially heinous, atrocious and cruel is another one. I mean, it's basically a catch-all um, and can be obviously hard for a jury to determine whether you know this murder that they've heard spent weeks hearing about is more heinous than a typical one. As a defense um, attorney, what do you, what do you do? Do you stand up there and talk about <laughs> other murders that have, that are just so much um, worse? Well, and, I, I'm, and this one is comparatively. Uh, I'm not or? a I'm not a trial attorney because I'm a coward. Um, <laughs> but, you know, certainly in appellate proceedings, you do You're talk the hindsight about attorney. You, you you do talk about cases that have. Um, if you're talking, you know, about you, you do cite cases that have resulted in life sentences that were that were truly awful. And, you know, that is something that you see. And it just further demonstrates just how arbitrary it is that, you know, you will see cases where someone has, you know, killed five people or committed, a, you know, a rape and murder in a, in a horrible way that have gotten 
life from in front of a jury. And then there are other cases you see where someone, you know, basically freaked out during a drug deal um, and shot someone and killed them and got the death penalty because of that. And it often, you know, has less to do with the facts of the offense and it has more to do with, you know, how good their attorney the was, the jurisdiction, and not just the state. And I think, you know, this this goes to how arbitrary it is. It's it's really the county you're in. There's really just a handful of counties in the whole country make up a huge percentage of the number of death sentences, like Harris County, St. Louis County. I mean, well, that's interestingly enough. That's also part of the that's part of the Hidalgo brief, um, where I think they. They basically say that the you're essentially death eligible if you do it in Maricopa County, right? Because mo- like there are a lot of counties in Arizona that literally don't have the budget right. to deal with capital trials, and so they just don't charge the death penalty at all. Whereas Maricopa County is like just death crazy, yeah, and they charge. Basically, anyone who's coming in for first degree murder uh, with a capital crime. Right. They had some insane, a few years ago, they had some insane number of pending capital trials in Maricopa County that it was actually like they, they couldn't find enough defense attorneys in the whole state or something to appoint, to appoint to all the cases, just because, like you said, every case was being charged capitally. And, you know, you'll see that. And every time they cross the county line, Arpaio arrested. <laughs> right. Um, and I remember around that time I spoke to a trial lawyer in um, who practiced in Maricopa County, and he said that he was representing an undocumented immigrant who was charged with capital murder, and um, he had had experience with that in a prior case. And in jury selection, there were jurors who would say basically they didn't care about anything else. They, if the person was undocumented, that was enough for them to think the person should get the death penalty. That really strikes me as an unconstitutional <laughs> aggravating factor. <laughs> Certainly. I mean, I don't do that. It's not my area of practice. But if I had to guess. Um, and so, so, so there we are. Like, it's interesting. I, I'm, I'm still coming back. I'm surprised that this is essentially what it's like everywhere. Though, though it certainly, I think, has to feel that way if you're doing capital appellate work. Because they really, I mean, there really is a huge section where they try to show that Arizona is worse than any place else in the country. <laughs> they actually, I think they distinguish it from Texas. <laughs> um, and, you know, I think, well, another thing I noticed in the Arizona brief was that they, you know, they, Arizona is is one of the states where felony murder is death penalty eligible. That's true, in, not true in every state. And I, I noticed in the brief there was a footnote that said that um, your death, you Fel, so felony murder is death eligible, and one of the eligible felonies was transporting marijuana for sale. Jesus so, like, if Christ. you're like if you're like driving a car full of weed and like you run over grandma by mistake or something, that's you know you're suddenly eligible for the death penalty. Uh, but you know the, the but the yeah it's true. I mean I I think they do a noble effort of trying to distinguish Arizona, but I don't really think it's that different. I mean I think you're you're seeing more cases charged in Arizona because. That's a death penalty hotbed now, but there was a there was a study in Missouri a few years ago that I think reached that same ninety nine percent cases death eligible number. It was very close. Mm-hmm. It was high nineties. Um, and again, I mean these 
you know, you see in all these states did the same thing. They they adopted these American Law Institute aggravators. And then, you know, every few years, you know, state legislatures are, of course, like filled with idiots. So they, you know, hear about some bad crime or they hear about something in the news is a new, you know, type of crime that's sweeping the nations. They add that to the aggravator. Right. So that's how you see like well, stuff like street gang in there and things like the that. knockout well, game. Right. Yeah, right. Yeah, they yeah, right. should get that on there. Well, that was like the, uh, uh, in the, the sort of the reply brief, the state basically said, well, you know, this isn't, uh, even proper because, um, you know, the, the case at hand, when you were sentenced, there were only 10 aggravating factors and now they're 14 and you're challenging the 14, but you weren't sentenced under the 14 factors. But, it, yeah. but you know, but they were like, well, when there was 10, it was 98%. And now it's 99%. Right. But it, I mean, it kind of goes to show how sort of ridiculous it right. is. Right. Yeah. You know? I mean, like, so one of the aggravators I saw that I'm sure is one of the newer ones is a murder used, a murder committed using a stun gun in Arizona, which is an incredibly <laughs> stupid aggravator to have. Like, why is that murder worse than yeah, any others? I mean, well, but how often I, does that happen? Well, let me let me just say, just like just like a shampoo bottle tells you not to be taken internally, <laughs> you know that that stun gun aggravator. If you checked the you know, the history in Arizona, there is someone who killed someone with a stun gun yeah. and did not get the death penalty, and they were like, "Well, that's crazy." Right? Yeah. It's, and so exactly. they added is, the is stun gun. Is using an actual gun an aggravator or just a stun gun? <laughs> just the stun gun. If you use the that's actual amazing. gun, you're you know at least safe in that regard. Holy shit! Though I gotta figure that that's probably they to. To just play devil's advocate, because I certainly think these people are, in fact, the devil. Um, <laughs> advocate away. I wonder if it's just like because in that particular case, it was just something where it was effectively torture. It just you kept know, like they were them, just yeah. Yeah. they just kept zapping some dude, and like and and for some reason they couldn't convince that particular jury that it fell under the heinous, atrocious, and cruel, and so they just wanted to sort of have a very specific aggravator. Can we take a time uh, out to mention the rat zapper again here? <laughs> <laughs> is that is that a, the my first dicta. sponsor? Let's let's cut that out. Mike Dicta brought to you by the rat zapper. <laughs> Uh, you know, we actually haven't checked in with Robin since to see if her uh, infested apartment has gotten. <laughs> well, if she better. got a rat zapper, I think it. I have one of those things, and it's excellent. It's uh, <laughs> there. You go. It's a must. A must in New York. Thank you, Michael. Yeah, but now, unfortunately, Mark is now representing the vermin in Robin's apartment <laughs> against the rat zapper. Although well, um, I'm representing Robin because she's killing the. Oh, Um, so uh, I just wanted one more thing before we uh, before we leave Hidalgo. I just wanted to point out I mentioned that uh, Maricopa County is Arpaio. uh, But in this brief, I also saw that the longstanding uh, county attorney in Maricopa County got disbarred <laughs> because he was so he was because of essentially bloodlust because um, they throw that in a footnote they throw that in a footnote too where they just 
they just mention how crazy Maricopa County is and how arbitrary administration is, right? They mentioned that it was the jurisdiction of Arpaio uh, that had, and then they also mentioned that uh, Michael, wait, who was the, uh, uh, the county attorney who was disbarred because, quote, he had outrageously <laughs> exploited power flagrantly fostered fear and disgracefully misused the law. <laughs> wow. You can get disbarred for it's, that? <laughs> indeed. Indeed, some form of prosecutorial misconduct has been found in 21% of capital cases Holy in Maricopa shit. County. Like, it's not enough. It's not enough that everything that could possibly happen in the course of a crime is an aggravating factor. They also cheat. Well, but to get disbarred is, you know, that's something else. Because I always was led to believe unless you steal from clients, you're fine. Uh, so to be get to get disbarred from what you think would be normal prosecutorial behavior uh, in Arizona, no less, is that's impressive. I mean, I'm sure that was his defense. <laughs> <laughs> With it's a long-standing tradition uh, to bend the rules exactly this badly in Arizona. Right. So the second case I, I want to talk about uh, is currently pending. Uh, I guess back in the Eleventh Circuit, uh, it it made a little bit of news because uh, the case was called Tharp uh, because the facts were so crazy, and then Thomas defended them. And so oddly <laughs> enough, I'm going to end up defending Thomas a little here. Awesome. Um, but but the the basic facts of Tharp are that he was convicted of murder uh, and he was uh, he was sentenced. I think he was he was sentenced to die. Another capital case. And seven years after the conviction and the sentence, some representatives or attorneys of the defendant, Tharp, basically found one of the jurors hammered, just absolutely <laughs> hammered at a bar. And he just started talking about really racist, like. Well, he was talking about. He, he was started doing. He did the Chris right, Rock. The Chris Rock. And word and colored people routine. <laughs> he. He essentially admitted that if the victim had been a low life, just like the murderer, he probably wouldn't have sentenced him to die. Right. There are two. There are two types of black people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Two, he did the color. Right. The, the 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 black people in N word uh, distinction, which is, and he knew the victims, and he knew them to be good people. Mm-hmm. Knew them to be good people. Yeah. And so. And so they were good, and the and he also questioned whether black people have souls and go to heaven. <laughs> and then somehow, whoever whoever got him hammered wrote all of this down. Well, I don't, well, I don't and think then they got had him, him sign it. What? I don't think they got him hammered. I think he maybe just was hammered. Well, I mean, I think no, no, no. I, I don't know. I'm not saying they fed him all the drinks, sure. but I think. I there is definitely the whiff of the fact that they found out he was racist and frequently drunk, and uh, 
and they, you they know helped got it him along. to spill. You know, it's an along. interesting thing. I just to connect back to Hidalgo for a second. Um, do you have a soul? Is actually one of the aggravating factors. In number, <laughs> number, number thirteen. Oh, it's, um, it's actually sure. in in Georgia. They just they. Sh- during at the end of the sentencing phase, the judge shows them that Chris Rock routine from the nineties <laughs> yeah. on you know black people versus the N word, and that's those are there, and that's in lieu of instructions, and that's how. So everything <laughs> right. he did was completely within the law. Right. It's yeah. Totally. <laughs> okay. Totally makes sense. So he signs this. So he actually signs it. Right. They write down all of the crazy <laughs> racist stuff he says. <laughs> And he signs it. But I just want to say this is a, this is a thing. This is this is how it's done. I mean, you go and you talk to jurors. You, you try to talk to every juror, and you'll people will sign affidavits on the spot. And that that's I would say what was, was done here was standard was standard practice. Yeah, right. Though this doesn't sound like an affidavit. It sounds like the back of a cocktail napkin <laughs> because he signs it, and then a few days later. The, the state gets him to sign a much more formal statement where he disavows everything he said in the bar wow. and claims that the other one wasn't notarized and he, you know, was really drunk at the time and that race had absolutely nothing to do with anything. And so faced with these facts, the 11th Circuit had a you know had a credibility hearing they had a big fact finding on everything and the 11th circuit basically said this changes nothing the jury the jury is sacrosanct the other 11 jurors all said that race didn't play a role including uh the i don't remember if it was one or two black people on the jury they all said none of that mattered and so the 11th circuit let it slide and the Supreme Court gets this and they write like a two page memorandum opinion where they basically go, holy shit. And they just send it back to the Seventh Circuit right. with like no findings. Right. They're just like, are you sure about this? Right. And they're not even they're not even sending it back on like the merits. They're sending it back for reconsideration on certificate of appealability, which is like the initial thing you need to get for them to even consider the appeal. So it's like telling them they need to reconsider whether they will consider this. It's right. very kind of narrow and really kind so of wimped out. That's like certiorari or what, what is that? So in, in habeas, because, you know, they find different ways to make right. habeas more difficult for you, when you're appealing from, you know, a district court's decision um, in a habeas case, um, you don't just file your appeal with the circuit court. Um, you need to, well, you either ask the district court or you ask the circuit court for what's called a certificate of appealability, which is this sort of threshold issue of whether the question is even basically worth considering or whether it's a question that someone might grant relief on. Um, right. And you know he was denied that, and now the Supreme Court is saying maybe, maybe reconsider that. Right, right. They don't even say you get a certificate of appealability. They basically are like, did you read all the racist things he said? Let's take another. <laughs> let's take a hard look at this. And so Thomas and Thomas with uh, 
Alito and uh, was it Gorsuch? It was Gorsuch in an yeah. early yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah. So Thomas with Alito and Gorsuch dissents from the per curiam because no one even put their name <laughs> on yeah, the on the decision curiam. to send it back. But Thomas dissents with the other two, and he's like. You know that they act, the district court actually read this, right? And so he goes through all of the reasons that the district court denied it. And like I used to tell people all the time that there was there was a really quick way to tell whether the Supreme Court was going to grant a capital defendant a new trial or not. <laughs> and the easy way to tell in the first couple of sentences is if they're going to grant the guy relief, it starts by talking about the importance of the appellate process. (laughs) And if they're not going to grant relief, it starts with a lurid description of the murder. Right. Right. Absolutely. (laughs) Like you always, you, if you are not going to grant the person relief, you make sure everyone knows how terrible it is. And so that's essentially what Thomas does. Right. He, he basically is like, these are unusual facts. It's bad law. Now I'm going to tell you about how horribly he murdered his sister's friend and raped his – or his wife's friend or his wife's sister. He, he went just – there was a lot. It's a terrible crime. Well, in the, in the, he, he mentions the, the race and gender of the victim. Yeah, right. A black woman is seeking justice here, and you know the court is getting in the way of that, which is really just uh, terrific. Yeah, the the victim is black too, by the way. I I mean, yeah, is sort of not sort of thing like actually what he what he pulled literally the last paragraph. Yeah. Yep. And and so, but I mean, but Thomas's but Thomas's response is basically like he did. Submit. He did sign this statement, and it's just as bad as you say it is. But, but everyone in that jury room said that it had nothing to do with the verdict. They found him; he was clearly guilty about all of these things. And this process is just so weird because the Eleventh Circuit is just going to deny the COA again. Mm-hmm. And we don't know why this wasn't just a run-of-the-mill thing. And the more you read through the facts, like, you end up being a little sympathetic to Thomas's point where he's just like, there was a credibility determination. They read the affidavit. They read, like, his later statements. They took testimony from everyone. And... You know, you're usually not supposed to peek behind the curtain, and this is why. Like, he's like, this just has ended up being this, like, really weird sideshow where we have this long process question when no one really has any doubts about any of this. Well, I think I think he has, I thought Thomas had a point in that when he, you know, he hits the majority for, you know, just granting this rinky-dink relief, like you said, which was just this remand to basically reconsider certificate of appealability. And, you know, what the court really should be doing here is, you know, I think it's a case like this shows why the death penalty is so unworkable, right? Because 
you've got, like we talked about in Hidalgo, the, the jury has this, sometimes it's called guided discretion, that this aggravating and mitigating factors, circumstances that they're supposed to be doing in the jury room. But the minute you peek back there, what you see is, hey, maybe they're talking about, you know, a Chris Rock bit from the 1990s instead and not really considering doing what they're supposed to be doing at all. And if we really start to peel that back, we're going to see that, you know, this structure that we've built up really is not doing what it's supposed to be doing. Right. And, and I think, I mean, Thomas, I think Thomas is an underrated writer for, for one thing. I think um, a lot of the plot it's Scalia used to get uh, maybe, Thomas, Save it for uh, the pod. Like sort of nutcracky, <laughs> cracker opinions. Um, he actually has like the clarity of writing, and so he can be very persuasive. But uh, I think he's coming from a strong point, also because our habeas system is so fucked, which I, I'm sure Mark uh, knows and feels strongly about. But uh, you know, habeas corpus for our our lay listeners is is what you call like a collateral attack. It's not a direct appeal to a decision. So this is something that started in state court. It went through the whole state court process all the way up to the state Supreme Court, I believe. And then afterwards, you're attacking it in federal court and saying, well, there was something constitutionally deficient in my trial that was missed. And the standards of review like, are really, really bad. It's like, the Supreme Court has to ask whether like a reasonable judge could find that another reasonable judge could have found that a reasonable jury could have, you know, thought this <laughs> and, was well, right. So basically, like basically and even worse. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. And even worse. And I Clinton's Bill Clinton's worst, worst act was not uh, the welfare reform and it wasn't DOMA. Edpa. It was EDPA, Edpa. And the Edpa. Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act, which Edpa. makes habeas review so hard because not only does it have to be constitutional error, but it has to be constitutional error that has previously been found by the Supreme Court. Right. Like right. it used to be that the district court on habeas could look at the trial record and say, this is like – this is clearly unconstitutional and we're going to, you know, give this guy a new trial. And now that's not even enough. Now you get a mulligan. They can say, (laughs) right. They can, right. They say they, but they, it's not even a mulligan because the Supreme court grants, like it has to come to the Supreme court on direct appeal before they'll even consider it in a habeas context. So you have to get, the like the like similar enough facts ruled on in one of the few cases that the Supreme Court takes as deter- like to be determined unconstitutional before it's even eligible right. for habeas right. consideration. And, and on top of that, you know, you the state court gets all this deference in habeas review that also makes it difficult. So. You know, basically, you, you can have cases where the federal court will know that the state court got it wrong, yeah. but because they weren't so clearly wrong, you still don't get relief. And really, what you end up litigating in habeas is not you know the facts of the case or the you know injustices that happen. You're you're litigating procedure and making sure that you know 
the claim was raised in the court below and this and that. And it really, it overtakes the case and it, the procedure swallows, you know, the relevant facts. And I think that's sort of what you see here. And in this case, especially, I mean, you're talking about how habeas is a collateral attack. This was really a collateral attack of a collateral attack because it was a rule 60 B motion filed following the habeas, which is, uh, it's a, in the rules of civil procedure, it's a, um, way to a, a attack a verdict. So you're trying to undo a decision that the district court already had made in the case. So that right. becomes even another level more difficult. Um, and <laughs> the, the analysis becomes even further removed from the facts and more focused on whether, you know, you were, you filed the right thing at the right time and raised the right claim at the right time and, and this and that. And it's, it's a nightmare. It's funny that the people who, uh, you know, sort of at the dinner table worry that uh, murderers is, are getting off on technicalities, uh, <laughs> right. you know, are relying on technicalities to make sure that, you know, actually innocent people or other folks uh, don't get the light of day in court. Right. Yeah. And, you know, you'll hear sometimes yeah. people say too, like, oh, these people who get the death penalty, they have they've had their case reviewed by, you know, 40 different judges. But really, once you've been through you know, a couple of early stages in state court, everything you're do, everything that happened there gets so much deference in, in, in the later stages that, you know, you, you can't really fully count what, right. you know, a, a federal district court's judge, this, you know, review of what a state court judge did and whether that was, you know, reasonable is not really like a fresh set of eyes on the case. Whether you correctly navigated the like, Kafka-esque like labyrinth of habeas. Um, right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's funny. The more I read Thomas's Tharp opinion, the more I've decided that what it is, is a draft 11th circuit opinion on remand <laughs> where he's just like three this votes for this, it. buddy. <laughs> yeah. Just cut and paste this. And you've got three votes <laughs> to deny cert on, uh, you know, when Tharp appeals it again, because he really does. He goes through, He's like, they're, the main case that they're arguing isn't retroactive, so he can't even take advantage of it. He can't take advantage of looking behind the the jury. You know, you can't, like, he just goes through one thing after another just to say that none of it counts. Though I feel, I do think, like, one of the things that he says is that, like, you know, it won't even help Tharp. And I'm like, well, I bet Tharp thinks it'll help him. <laughs> Anything you know, will it's help not Tharp. Like, like yeah. there, is, there, is no, there is no scenario where Tharp gets to frolic in a field, yeah. right? They're like, all, Thomas is like, all this will do is postpone his execution. And all I could think when I'm reading this is like, well, that's, I think, kind of what they're going for. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> right. I mean... You know, some of this is just, you know, playing the clock, you know. And so, you know, he's not writing his own briefs. He's just trying to sort of have his attorneys keep him alive for longer. So that just that just seemed like gratuitously bitter on Thomas's part. No. <laughs> Good old Thomas. I, uh you know, I have a I, sorry, a tangent, but uh, an aside about Thomas being bitter. Um, I had a friend who clerked at the Supreme Court for another justice, and there is um, a tradition, I guess, where 
each individual justice will take out all the other justices' clerks to lunch once. Um, and so at his lunch with Thomas, um, I guess unsurprisingly, politics came up and somebody mentioned, I think it was Harry Reid, um, and Thomas like made a face and my friend, you know, said that he thought that like Thomas had been friends with Reed or something like that. And Thomas told him you'd show him something after lunch and brought him back to his <laughs> office. And in his desk, in his top drawer, he had the roll call for his confirmation vote to the Supreme Court with all the yays <laughs> and all the nays. And he kept that shit for like <laughs> over a yeah, decade man. and had it right at hand. Like, oh, man. that is Let's salt. read a yay right now. Yeah. That, <laughs> that's the an, kind of, like, he needs to get on Twitter if he has that kind of, like, obsessiveness <laughs> with his, like, haters. Yo, block yeah, that motherfucker. 2018, <laughs> Thomas versus Reed. Yeah. Sue your haters, you We have kept simple on. So we, copyright, yeah. copyright Kev. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. So I guess I guess we're gonna move on a little from the from the low stakes. Oh, let's wait until everyone's got their files in order. Uh, Twenty five minutes of riffling. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna move from the uh, from the from the very uh, low stakes of capital crimes. To the very high stakes of gerrymandering, uh, because that partisan gerrymandering is, you know, shaping up to be one of the really big, really big issues uh, for the coming Supreme Court term. Right now, uh, there are two and possibly a third uh, case coming up. I mean, first, Gilvey Whitford, the Wisconsin case is already in front of the Supreme Court. I think they already had oral argument. Yeah. Uh, they just granted cert in uh, Benisek, a uh, case out of Maryland. Um, and the Pennsylvania Supreme Court just invalidated their uh, their congressional map. And so that is now – wait, is – I think they actually invalidated the state map in Pennsylvania. The Pennsylvania Supreme Court invalidated the Pennsylvania map – and so that's coming. That is, uh, I think they've asked for an emergency stay, uh, though I don't think that's been ruled on yet. No, they um, just they so just a lot going in. on. Yeah, it, say again. They just put in the stay. It hasn't been ruled in ruled on yet. Right. Um, but there's also then I think the North Carolina case might also end up at the Supreme Court. Yep. Um, so. Yep. Yeah. There's a, there's a lot. Yeah. There's and I mean a lot of stuff. You know, going on. That's uh, Rucho, I guess, is the uh, is the North Carolina case. Yeah. So, I mean, a lot of stuff going on. And the big the big question is whether uh, these states have gone too far in partisan gerrymandering. Right. When uh, when one party gets control of both the executive and the legislative, uh, whether they do too aggressive redrawing of maps. And I know the Wisconsin case, I discussed this one for a while on uh, 
this week in atrocity with uh, with Jeb Lund. But the the case in Wisconsin was based on a theory called the efficiency gap, where the where a fair map is so like where the where the map as drawn is so far away from what a fair map would look like based on the actual voter preferences in the state, there's a threshold at which it becomes unconstitutional. And one of the one of the example they gave in Wisconsin, and it's been a while, so I don't remember the numbers anymore, but I think there are 99 seats in the Wisconsin uh, assembly. And the vote was pretty close to 50-50. Democrats got 52%. And, and, yeah. yeah. And they got- And third, the Republicans yeah. ended up with a super majority. Yeah, 52% of the vote in 39 out of 99 seats, which is right. like- so, so 60 to 39, uh, Republican advantage in representatives, even though they actually had a minority of the vote. And then, of course, in the next election- as uh, as Walker got stronger in Wisconsin, I don't know how it would be today. Um, the the Republicans actually did get a majority of the votes, right. and then I think they increased their right. majority in the House to something like sixty five or sixty six seats, right. and they actually ended up with like a two thirds supermajority, which I think allowed them to literally imprison anyone <laughs> who voted against a bill introduced by a Republican. Right, right. Um, oh, well, yeah, no, they use these majorities. I mean, you're, you're joking, but they did use those majorities to pass voter ID and right to work, which both really punish Democrats at the ballot box in other ways, you know, hurt their organizing yeah. and hurt their get out the vote mm-hmm. efforts and I mean, and I'm sure Mark knows this because it's even like North Carolina is like ground zero for incredibly vindictive legislative chicanery. Yeah. I mean, one of the last things, <laughs> one of the last things McCrory did, right? I mean, you'll remember this as McCrory left office, he essentially signed away all of the powers of the governor <laughs> to, right, yeah. to the legislature. Because they had a supermajority in the legislature. Right. And they did this thing where they've tried to move the election board into this ethics board so that the new Democratic governor doesn't have as much control over it. And it's just, it seems like they've tried to do basically any and everything that they can think of to, you know, make it easier for Republicans to get elected, to make it harder for, you know, minorities and poor people to vote. And, and some of those things have been invalidated, but but not all of them certainly right right i thought one of the interesting things about uh Benisek is you know almost all of these cases have taken the stance where you know as the as republicans have taken over state houses across the country it's usually them uh who are doing all of the dirty work of disenfranchising democrats and Benisek is interesting to me for two reasons. First of all, um, because it was a, a Democratic governor uh, and uh, legislature, which redrew this one district. Right. Um, and what's interesting about it is they only challenged – it was a Republican who was in a very safe Republican seat who had his district redrawn – 
um, by, oh God, why can't I remember his name? It's the presidential candidate who got like one vote. Uh, the governor of Maryland. Oh, O'Malley. O'Malley. <laughs> Martin O'Malley. <laughs> the sexiest yes. of all yes. the presidential the, candidates. O'Malley would have won. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, Martin O'Malley.com. <laughs> so, so Martin, so O'Malley was one of the guys who, uh, who, who passed this, he redrew this one district. And so this Republican who went from having an incredibly safe seat in the new district he had to run in got blown out, right? right. He went from being plus 20 to minus 20. And so he, he basically argued that he was the victim of a partisan gerrymander, though it was only his district as opposed to statewide in North Carolina and Pennsylvania. Right. And right. And there's also different, I think, constitutional issues at play, right? Like Wisconsin, I think they're there it's based on equal protection in the voters saying they, you know, they're they're not getting equal protection of the law. Whereas I think in Maryland the primary um argument is based around the First Amendment and political association and being Correct. For, yeah. For your <clears throat> yeah. Though I think to me, what's interesting about it is Benisek, like the Benisek argument is probably giving the Wisconsin and Pennsylvania legislatures seizures because the Ben, the Benisek argument is that partisan gerrymandering is essentially improper in all cases, right? right? I mean, this guy is trying to protect his own district and he's firing away at a Democratic uh, government, a Democrat-run government, but he is using arguments that would cripple (laughs) the defenses in in the Gill case and the North Carolina case and the Pennsylvania case. And so it's just it's just a really funny situation where the one Republican victim of all of this <laughs> is trying to blow the whole thing up because he's mad because he lost his seat. Yeah. And like you like I'm just surprised he hasn't been like handcuffed and thrown in a closet <laughs> before he could file this thing, much less get it in front of the Supreme Court. And I just figure that Alito is going to figure out a way to thread the needle <laughs> where every Republican gerrymander is fine, right. but this is the one improper one. Right. And this guy gets his seat back. That's actually, if there's anybody who could do it, it would, it would be Alito, the uh, right. quintessential partisan hack. But, um. Um, yeah, I mean, it's just... It's just a very funny, and it, I mean, to me, like when you re, when you read the response, right, asking to affirm it, they're like, "Well, usually the problem with political gerrymandering <laughs> is that it bakes in permanent change," and the guy who ran as a Republican after this guy got kicked out of office, damn near won, right even though he was outspent like five to one and the underlying voting isn't nearly as bad as he's claiming it is. And also we kept counties intact. And the the problem, the guy is complaining about having his district redrawn. 
even though his district was drawn as a horrible partisan gerrymander <laughs> in, in the, the first, first place. place. Right. 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 Like they're like that, like they they incorporated two counties by having the by having the district go across a bridge and like take in like some really big white suburb, which gave all of the vo- like all of the votes to this guy. And so they're like, we did. We redrew this along all of the good nonpartisan principles and you're just mad because you lost so you know back to suing your haters <laughs> yeah exactly that is this is suing your haters i yeah. think that belongs in the yeah. canon I yeah think although it, yeah this out. started he started early on this so he That's got, true. He got That's true. rolling he's a pioneer yeah. in suing your haters because i think he sued i guess it, he started suing back in 2011 and just keeps like he just kept losing Sounds a lot like his uh, election, honestly. <laughs> uh, but he did get cert, so like, there's nothing yeah. great about it. Um, well, I mean, I think that I think that the Supreme Court has to take these cases in almost all circumstances. It's kind of quirky, uh, which is one of the reasons why I think a few of the justices, literally, I think Alito said or Roberts, I think Roberts said at oral argument that. Um, you know, one of the reasons to sort of just say the Supreme Court shouldn't have anything to do with partisan gerrymandering is because once they say it's a constitutional standard, every single map will be challenged. The Constitution of the United States says that you challenge those in front of three judge district panels, and those get directly appealed to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court has to take the appeal, like in almost all cases. And that the Supreme yeah. Court will just be hearing gerrymandering cases all the time, and they, and they don't want to do that. And yeah, which which is, I mean, that's just that's very Roberts, of course. Yeah, is is to like throw things out because it like it means having to do his job. <laughs> right. Exactly. Right. Like, like I think How half dare of you? half of yeah half of Roberts' opinions are like. This is just more work for me. <laughs> Dismissed. There's, it's 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 remarkable this like strain through his and a few and conservative you know jurisprudence in general where it's like a real disdain for things being decided in courts. It's like right. oh yeah. more stuff for the courts to do. <laughs> it's like yeah, I can't it's just like, agree on the right. side. You know? right. Well, it's like half the time the Supreme Court printer has to like reissue opinions where they delete Robert's tea time. <laughs> well, I mean, it's the same thing with habeas, right? I mean, they're just have every, the whole thing is designed to prevent you from having your case actually considered in any meaningful way. Right, right. Right. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. And so, and those are just the most frustrating where they, where they give short shrift to the facts and then they're like, ah, I I didn't really read all of this, <laughs> but that's okay because my ruling is that I shouldn't have to have read any. Well, of that's it. the yeah, that's the second that is the second layer of it where they're they're like, oh, we have to hear all these, and then it's always all this social science and all this statistics, <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, oh, that's so much. It's like, oh, I think I think there actually was an exchange during during the 
during the court where Roberts did say something like yeah. that, where he's like, where he like all of a sudden was unfrozen caveman lawyer, where he's like, all of these studies are so confusing. I'm just a simple attorney and I can't understand all this science. And then one of the other justices was like, we read these sorts of things all the time. Right. It's literally what we do. Right. Well, it's like, ah. what are, what, why are you doing this? <laughs> it's, it's, it's bizarre. And it's, it's not any different than the type of evidence they take in, you know, racial gerrymandering cases, which they take, you know, all the time. And they read social science and academics. It's not, it's not really that different at all. But, uh, yeah. you know. I mean, Scalia had a line, had a similar argument in like, there was a patent case and he's just like, ah, we all just pretend to know the science. <laughs> like we don't know, like it's all gibberish. Who the fuck are we kidding? This is all, none of us understand any of this. And it like, it almost like, it was like a section of his opinion that could have been like insane clown boss. It's like magnets. <laughs> How do they work? <laughs> I don't even know why this is in front of me. <laughs> I don't know how. Never, never since creation in seven days has a judge had to decide a case involving science. Well, it, you know, one of the one of the complaints is the idea that this will make you know the Constitution you know put uh, social science into the Constitution as a constitutional standard, which is garbage. Um, but what I really liked about the North Carolina opinion, I don't know if anybody else read it. It is a 200-page behemoth. That's a no. no <laughs> I, I assume not. <laughs> but, but I read it, and um, I think the, what the court did that was really nice is they made a point of saying, basically, the social science isn't the standard. The standard is, is there partisan intent, and is there a partisan effect um, and can that effect be described by something else that's like a legitimate concern, like geography or communities of interest, um, things like that? Um, and the social science is evidence, which judges hear all the time. And they hear, you know, experts weigh in on highly technical things as evidence, right? And that's totally, it's amazing that it's taken somebody, you know, 15 years to spell this out in a clear way that will like answer this inane critique that, that you hear. But, uh, and in, the intent question is interesting, uh, especially in Wisconsin, uh, because of a persistent through line in, uh, in Republican attempts to sort of steal the election nationwide <laughs> in this sort of way. And it's the problem that, uh, that uh, Jeb and I always refer to as quiet part loud. Right. Which is that they constantly sort of show their ass. Like anytime you put a microphone in front of the right state representative, he just admits to the partisan intent of it <laughs> and says something like, soon we won't, like, they'll never be able to elect a Democrat in this state again. We're going to draw this map so good. Soon my enemies will won't. be driven before me. <laughs> and, and one of the things that happened in Wisconsin was the Wisconsin tried everything they could to hide all of the deliberations from discovery. You right. know, they outsourced it. 
They did it in a room where the Democrats had no access to anything. They hired outside experts who they believed to be essentially beyond the subpoena power, and they denied discovery constantly. And then when the judge finally made them turn everything over, there were just all these emails where they were like, can we make this map more partisan? <laughs> well, that's like, <laughs> like in North Carolina, they, uh, you know, they, there's like a bipartisan committee, but since Republicans had a majority in the in the, the state legislature, they had a majority on the committee. But so there's this argument that's you know um, sort of rehashed in the statement of facts in the in the North Carolina opinion, where it's like these Democrats are like, you know, this map is just going to make it a permanent ten Republican, three Democrat state, even though. You know, it's very competitive and and we're really concerned about that. And the Republican replies, he's just like, you know, the intent is to make it to a 10-3 map because I'm not convinced we could make it an 11-2 map. (laughs) 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 That's like like right there. He's just like, fuck you guys. (laughs) You know, it's uh, unbelievably bold. Like the two Democrats on the committee had to share like – one office, right. which was a bathroom stall. Right, exactly. <laughs> it's just one bathroom stall with two nameplates on it. <laughs> um, so, so I think the upshot, though, is that this is going to end up before the Supreme Court, and they are once again like they're just going to if if. It's voted on in like as partisan a way as all of these maps are drawn. They're basically just going to say um, they're just going to be like, yeah, we can't hear this at all. Right. Right. Though it's there is a Supreme Court case. Uh, there is a Supreme Court case called Vith, um, where they said uh, there is an I think it was Kennedy who wrote like it is justiciable. Right. Partisan gerrymandering is a case that is theoretically possible. And then they refused to, like, decide where the event horizon was, like just how partisan it had to be. And the Wisconsin case is interesting because they were the first judges to say, this is it. Like, here is a here is a a statistically valid measure that shows you where the horizon is. And this is so far beyond it, you should really look at this and undo it. And I think one of the – like the timing on all of this ends up being really crazy, especially with things like uh, the House of Representatives where the elections are every two years. The cases always take more than an election cycle. So you vote on a bad map. And then someone sues, but they don't get an injunction. And so another election takes place under a bad map. And then they replace it with another bad map. And so now you have to sue for that map. And like because none of this gets fast-tracked, it ends up not mattering. Right. Because they just keep passing new unconstitutional maps that the elections can't catch up to. Because like they just don't matter for statewide office. Yeah. The uh, so so one thing I'll say about the Pennsylvania case that's encouraging, um, you know, is that it was decided on the Pennsylvania Constitution, not the federal Constitution. 
um, which makes it very difficult for the Supreme Court to review. Not necessarily impossible, but very, very difficult. Um, so for all our talk of Leto being a hack and Roberts being lazy and, and all that and Kennedy being fickle, um, this, is, this does present perhaps the, avenue, the other avenue to take uh, you know, if the Supreme Court is unavailing, which is um, most, if not all, of the state constitutions have a more robust protection for the right to vote. Uh, the federal constitution doesn't even actually protect the right to vote, which is something that when you think about is pretty fucked up, <laughs> but, is, but is true. But almost every state constitution does uh, explicitly or sort of, uh, you know, in a roundabout way. Um, yeah. So that, that might be the avenue to, to, to take right. in the future. Not surprisingly, the people uh, seeking the injunction uh, cited a bunch of cases where the Supreme Court uh, held that a state court, you know, ruling on, you know, what it claims were state grounds, but under a uh, under a rubric that is the same as the parallel right. uh, federal ground, were effectively deciding under federal grounds right. and reversed them anyway. Right. Uh, though, I mean, in those cases, you figure they would just remand and then, you know maybe theoretically and you know have a new state uh principle but you know that's sort of just where it sat and so but i i i like to have hope about these things but i'm just i end up being very kind of sanguine about like how much i think that this supreme court is going to change any of these rules while they you know are advantageous to them and so, Let's, like some, uh, they're gonna thread they're gonna thread the needle on Gill and Banasek, and I'm gonna like my I'm, my head is gonna explode. Well, I think most people when they would, decide yeah, when they when they accepted cert when they decided to hear Banasek, it, it surprised a lot of people because it pretty much fast fast tracked uh, Gill v. Whitford. The first case they heard, um, you know, they when they when that came up to them, um, they had already accepted. You know, granted certiorari and decided to hear cases and scheduled them for you know, December, January, February oral argument. And then they accepted Gill and scheduled it for October. So it was like they, they were like, we're going to hear this quick. You know, we're going to hear this right at the beginning yeah. of the term. It seemed like there was a lot of energy to decide it. And then they had oral argument and everybody figured, OK, it's been decided and now everything else they'll just stay until that opinion comes out and then remand to all the other cases and be like, you know, redo this in light of Gil v. Whitford. But instead they accepted right. argument on Banasek and everybody's like, wait, what? Like, what? <laughs> 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 They're, We're doing more gerrymandering cases and it's not even like argument hasn't been scheduled yet. So we don't even know when we're doing it. So now it seems like, they're just going in on it, and it's uh, hard to read the tea leaves on what that means. I mean, that is that's certainly the hope. The hope for Pennsylvania is they're like, at least give us a stay until you decide Gill, right? Um, you know, because and they, but that is, I mean, the tactic there is just the stay will pro- almost certainly be long enough that a new map can't be drawn in time. For the 2018 elections, and so that's really what they're hoping for with the stay. The Republicans, one more, in Pennsylvania. one more yeah. bite. Yeah, the Republicans are hoping for one more 
uh, bite at the apple with this map, <coughs> uh, even if it is ultimately determined to be unconstitutional. So, uh, so our last topic of the day is certainly the most important of the three that we're going to address, uh, and it is uh, Milo's suit against Simon and Schuster. The fans have uh, demanded over, we address this. Yes. Yeah, we have to talk about Milo suing his haters. Uh, mm. In this particular case, it's Simon and Schuster who uh, who dropped his book. Uh, just on the grounds that it was, in their words, unpublishable shit. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so, and so they threw the book out and they gave it back to him. And he published it. Advance, right? It's like eighty grand or something. No, yeah. So, well, they yeah, let him. So, yes, they let him keep his advance. He, which was eighty grand. But then he sued for like the remaining like half million. Well, so the, the so some. the contract for this book is a standard book contract, which sets out the basic principle that uh, we don't have to publish it if we don't like it. But there are steps in between that say you must do X or Y if you want to uh, reject it. Um, at some point. Milo became so toxic to Simon and Schuster that they decided to send him an email saying, "We're not publishing it. Keep the eighty thousand that we just gave you. We don't want anything to do with this." This wasn't uh, the sweet Milo that we yeah. started out with. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we thought we thought you were just a racist. Yeah. But it has come to our attention that you are apparently a defender of pedophilia. Not and that is a bridge too far. Yeah, you have not sufficiently, um, you know, uh, denounced pedophilia. So please keep the eighty thousand uh, dollars. Go away, uh, and we will never talk to you again. Uh, they reverted the control of the book to him. He self-published it, and then sued them, basically saying that. Uh, they had not met the conditions in the contract saying that they must give him notice and a certain opportunity to cure uh, and deliver a new transcript to them with the uh, edits that they wanted to make, et cetera. And that's where we are today. Yep. And I mean, the first thing Simon and Schuster tried is they went right off the bat. They tried to go for an accord and satisfaction defense, right? Like they, cause they, they sent the letter and they're like, you can keep, you can keep the deposit, you can keep, keep the uh, the advance, uh, you can keep the advance, and that will release all claims uh, if you keep the advance. And Milo essentially did nothing, and he 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 kept it, didn't return the money, uh, and so then. Uh, and then he sued for the whole thing, and so Simon and Schuster responded, and they're like, "Well, you kept the money, and he sent you a letter 
releasing everything. And you publish. And and you and then you write and then you publish the book. Mm. And and so we win. It's over. <laughs> right. Which seems Go fair. Home. That's <laughs> I don't know. That, that <laughs> sounds right. But but it turns out like here's and we'll get to why this matters uh in a minute, but Milo's attorneys uh were very They good, were good, yeah. Right. His mm. his attorneys at the time, uh Mr. Seelig and Fine, are very good uh copyright attorneys. And they just took apart the accord and satisfaction defense because they're like, number one, usually the way accord and satisfaction works is you're like, here's a check. Uh, and if you cash this check, all of your you're accepting our our agreement to terminate this relationship entirely. Mm-hmm. And in this case, you didn't give him a check. You sent him a letter. He had that check for months. Right, right. Right. You he you got that check when he signed the original book contract. He didn't cash it now, he cashed it then. All he didn't do is write you a check. Right, right. Returning the money. And if you read your own contract, dummies, he's got <laughs> 18 months to do that. Right? So it doesn't matter that he didn't give it back yet. And the reason he self-published his book. Is because your letter didn't make reverting the rights of the book contingent on the money anyway. And he was supposed to <laughs> mitigate his damages by right. publishing and then they're elsewhere. Like, number anyway. one, right? And there are like two reasons. Number one, you just you just released the rights to the book. It was in a different paragraph from the part where you said keep the advance and terminate all relationships. They're like, they're so, so he could have done this anyway, but even if that weren't true, he has to mitigate damages. Uh, do you know how much uh, Milo sold of his book? <laughs> this is the mitigation. I wanna, I wanna how much? How much? $3,000. <laughs> what? <laughs> $3,000, which is probably 100 copies yes. of Milo's book. It's Maybe 200. undersold gorilla mindset. <laughs> that is, he, he has mitigated so far to the tune of three grand. Holy and, shit. Uh, I think we could sell this part episode. Of, and that's part more. of his... I think we could sell this episode of Mike Dicta for for more. <laughs> I mean, but that's I mean, and that's his argument. He's like, I didn't have the weight of Simon and Schuster behind me. Uh, also, uh, I said very some pedophile sympathetic things. Uh, one or oh, both by of those the way. may be factors. <laughs> um, but the reason it matters that he had good attorneys then is because he no longer does. <laughs> uh, well, um, that's fascinating. Like, so so his lawyers moved to be relieved on the basis that he wanted to do things that they didn't want him to do. And then yep. he later released like, a Like, statement. have sex with children? Yeah. <laughs> 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 And then he later uh, re- he he sort of simultaneously released a statement saying that uh, he was asked he asked them to be relieved because certain discovery in the case was uh, issued as attorney's eyes only, uh, and he wanted to be able to see that. Therefore, the fact that uh, 
those attorneys were in the way would permit him to see the discovery. The interesting thing is the order of the judge, as far as I can tell, is that all the attorney's eyes only stuff, which was protected because it had nothing to do with him and had dealt with trade secrets and he was a competitor with his new publishing arm, et cetera. So uh, terms of contracts with other writers, et cetera. Uh, he still doesn't get to see it for the judge. <laughs> it's still, oh, really? Yeah. Even as a pro se, yes. he doesn't get no, any they, of that? They oh. continue to protect it and uh, have put it off to conference, uh, hoping that he will either A, not show up, because the judge said if he doesn't show up uh, on in March, they're going to dismiss it. Uh, or if he does show up with a lawyer, uh, then they will issue that discovery to him. But he is still not allowed to see those four or five emails that uh, Simon Schuster was uh, seeking to protect. I, I would love to be a fly on the wall of Milo wearing like his Johnny Depp level of scarves, <laughs> like trying to read through Simon and Schuster's business records. Like, just like being like, this is all so boring. Yeah. <laughs> why, why do I have to do this? Well, apparently it shows like, what they paid to Pamela Geller or something. Cause I guess he published her later. Uh, so there are, there's this concept that he is competing with them with his new uh, venture, uh, which has protected certain emails that discuss other authors and stuff uh, from, from right. him looking at them. Yeah. I mean, like, but I mean, the fact is like confidentiality designations are pretty typical. Like the plaintiff usually doesn't need to see most of the underlying business records, though attorney's eyes only is you could tell, I think Simon and Schuster did things attorney's eyes only because they trusted Mr. Seelig and Fine, and, right? A reputable <laughs> firm and they don't. that does like, you know, quality work. But they know that like anything that Milo gets his hands on is going to be on WikiLeaks. Yeah, exactly. And so like there's no way they're letting him near their business records personally. Right. And so, and so he no longer has an attorney because the, there was a disagreement over whether Milo was too big a nuisance even for his own allies. <laughs> <laughs> and so they quit. And so now he's, now he's pro se until he realizes that he actually has to do real work. Or, you know, I mean, Simon and Schuster's attorneys are Davis Wright Tremaine, who are also top-notch copyright counsel, <laughs> who will literally carve him up, like, and smile as he bleeds <laughs> if he actually tries to well, go pro se the rest of the, the way. interesting thing is he had a pretty good case against Simon and Schuster, which is they wanted to drop him immediately, and the contract sort of suggested that if your manuscript sucked, there would be some back and forth over a period of time. Uh, and right. that's why uh, he defeated uh, Simon & Schuster's initial motion to dismiss over all these things, etc. cetera. Uh, but I have no, he, they took a very aggressive posture. They moved for uh, summary judgment, Milo did, uh, immediately. And you only get one in New York State Court. Uh, and the idea was that uh, they thought they were going to be very aggressive with them. But I have no idea 
uh, how uh, Milo's going to step in now uh, and, and continue that litigation posture. That's, what, that's what's in March is a summary judgment conference? Yeah. <laughs> and, and he's filed it pre-discovery. Yes. You, you get because one. he was doing it. You can take it. <laughs> he was doing it straight on a textualism. Or you can take it before. Yeah, but they yeah. they filed early. They were being very aggressive. Uh, but uh, for some reason, you know, again, uh, his lawyers say a, a difference of opinion. He says, "I just wanted to see these documents." Uh, he doesn't get the documents, so who knows what <laughs> <laughs> what's going on here. Yeah. I mean, it would be funny if like and my guess is the well is sufficiently poisoned that he can't just like call up Mr. Seelig and fine and be like, fine, I won't look at the documents. <laughs> and then and like they're just going to be like new phone who dis. Yeah. <laughs> there is no way they want to take that call again no. because those meetings had to be just unbearable. Oh, my God. <laughs> for for. For his attorneys, where like he kept trying to like head fake them and then grab the documents and run into a locked room. <laughs> and it's only like five documents, from what I can tell. It's just oh really? No, it, it's stuff where, as part of an email chain, he was mentioned, and then they went on to discuss somebody else and their contract. So it's this very limited, uh, apparently like. Five to ten percent of the overall discovery is subject to this uh, protection as it is, and he seems to think that there's something, uh, you know, absolutely like smoking gun there. But in my experience, I don't think so. Well, I thought maybe it's just insane vanity that he really wants to see how he compares to, uh, <laughs> to <laughs> like what Adam was Geller. what was that person getting? Yeah, <laughs> I'm <know>? pretty sure. <laughs> Right. That's, that's literally just dying to know yeah. if somebody else. That, got that was the idea. only purpose of this lawsuit. <laughs> There's, I mean, can you imagine being the guy who signed this deal for Milo's book, right? For a half million dollars, you sign this guy, and then when he self-publishes the book, it sells like two. Hundred copies. <laughs> how how bad is your judgment of the pulse of America? Right when you thought that you could, like, you're like, well, he seems famous, yeah. and you just gave him a half million bucks, and now you're gonna have to like, you've given him eighty, and I got it. Like, if he doesn't win summary judgment, I still. He, this this has got to settle because it can't possibly be worth it to fight all the way to the end. And this is just how would it settle down though so with him much with him representing himself? <laughs> like literally, he has no other objective other than to uh, you know make everybody's lives a living hell uh, in court. Yeah, I mean, I gotta he's gotta at least hire someone to do oral argument. <laughs> no, he definitely he will. not. I don't. Know. <laughs> I do not. I, I want him to do oral argument. No, 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 no. I mean, from his own perspective, I would love for him to just keep jumping up and going. I object. I object in the commercial district in New York. Of, if he's gonna, if he's gonna go sit in front, stand in front of a judge and represent himself, I, I will go to that uh, yeah. and I will report on it. It's not just any <laughs> judge. It's like Barry Ostriger. Uh, in the the New York uh, commercial uh, part, 
uh, who apparently was some partner at some big ass law firm and was famously like a humongous prick. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I just can't imagine this guy flouncing around in front of him uh, and getting any kind of traction, but we'll see. Yep. He's just going to keep going. My lawyers wrote something about that, but I did not understand any of it. Just trust them. <laughs> but I mean, it, it really is crazy to do this pro se. This is, this is the, the one thing, the one bit of actual advice that Mike Dicta will uh, give to all of our listeners out there. Uh, You've heard us talk. You don't have to be a genius to do this, <laughs> but you kind of have to do this to do this. <laughs> like, okay. there are just, barriers you know, to you know, entry. Right? We're, yeah. we're not. We're not. We're not necessarily geniuses, but you sort of learn how to do the dumb specific thing that we do. And it's not the kind of thing you just want to walk into cold. Well, but he had a good, because the other people know the, and way. he had a good case. And I think he's, and he had good attorneys, and a, good, a great set of attorneys who completely like slapped, uh, you know, Simon and Schuster down the first time. And I have to say, I think this is going to be a case where you snatch defeat yep. from the jaws of victory. Ambrose Burnside, classic Civil War general. <laughs> One is the loneliest number that you'll ever do. All right, so I'd like to thank everyone uh, who joined us today. Uh, Tarek, my um, mentions on Twitter. Uh, Michael, who is Fleeroff on Twitter. Uh, Mark, who is Kev who is kept underscore simple. And I am you girls, Charles Starr. Thanks again for listening to Mike Dicta. Good night, everybody. Thanks, y'all. Thanks. All right. It's the saddest experience you'll ever know. Because one is the loneliest number that you'll ever do. One is the loneliest number that you'll ever know. It's just no